Hello, I'm Julian Bagini, and welcome to this Microphilosophy podcast. This edition is an interview with Mary Warnock, who still, as an octogenarian, is the very model of a public philosopher. She chaired the Committee of Inquiry into Human Fertilisation and Embryology back in the 1980s, which gave rise to the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act, and she has sat in the House of Lords since 1985. I was talking to her at the Arnold Feeney in Bristol at last year's Festival of Ideas about her latest book, Dishonest to God, on keeping religion out of politics. This subject, keeping religion out of politics, why is that something which you felt drawn to write about at this particular time? The reason that I wrote it was that I was very much conscious of the fact that in the House of Lords, where uniquely we have the bishop's bench, everybody gives particular attention to what the bishops say on a collection of legislation that, broadly speaking, is obviously moral legislation, such as the attempts we've made to introduce a change in legislation about assisted dying. And before that, the Embryology Act, which I was very much involved in, and long before that, the Abortion Act, and, of course, also the abolition of capital punishment. All those bits of legislation have obviously moral content, and it began to strike me very forcibly that the bishops had special attention paid to them because they were, A, professionally religious, and, B, were therefore supposed to have special insight into morality. And I think what I wanted to argue in this book is that although the bishops are accustomed to talking about morals, they have no special insight into morality. And in general, my thesis is that morality, as it were, precedes religion. Religion comes along as a huge imaginative construct to illustrate or make forceful the concepts of morality which lie deep in human consciousness. This link between morality and religion is often assumed, of course, by people, but you think there are various reasons why it's quite harmful that people come to believe that morality in some way depends upon religion. Why, why is it problematic to, to assume that? I think one very obvious reason why it is is that there are increasing numbers of people who actually reject religion altogether, and they certainly don't reject morality. But there's a danger that people might be thought to have rejected morality if they reject religion, and that is just manifestly not the case. Now, people say, when I point that out, they say, ah, well, but we're living on the legacy of religion, and that even those children who know nothing about religion and never have been in a church are rarely benefiting from the days when everybody did go to church. But my contention is the exact opposite, that in fact, although I certainly don't deny that the kind of morality that many of us try to live by is, broadly speaking, Christian, nevertheless, it was the morality that came first, and this huge to my mind, wonderful, imaginative story came afterwards and illustrates the morality. 
I mean, there are other perhaps potential dangers of linking morality too much to religion you identify. And one is, if quote a little sentence from the book, you say, people may come to think that as religion is optional, so morality is optional likewise. I feel this is very, very important indeed, because if the connection between religious rules and moral rules is thought to be intimate and inevitable and you can't tell them apart then if you reject religion, you may be rejecting morality as well, and you may lapse into a kind of moral relativism, which seems to me one of the worst, most dangerous positions that there are, because we know that there are generations of children now growing up who know nothing of religion, but many of them know nothing of morality either. They don't understand the concepts, and if somebody starts talking about what's right and what's wrong, they throw that away, regard it as rubbish, just as they regard religion as rubbish. Throw it all out and do what you want. And that is a terrible position for society even to contemplate entering. People are very keen on quoting the line from the Dostoevsky novel, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. What do we rest ethics on if we don't base it on religion? I think the only thing then to do is to have a look at what human beings need. And the answer to that is they need to live in society, they need to reciprocally accept things from one side and give things on the other side, they need to sympathise with one another, they need to understand what it is to be a human being, which is to live in society. From that, it seems to me, the concept of treating other people as of equal importance to yourself is the foundation of morality. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it your view that part of the problem, historically at least, with tying morality too closely to religion is that we get an idea of authority and then we get the idea that these moral principles can simply be asserted once and forever and no longer be open to scrutiny a change and so forth. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is a danger. But, of course, what happened in the um, life of Jesus of Nazareth was that he opened up the concept of morality and thought that it was proper to throw away the rules in some case and instead have a much more open morality of love and charity and not caring about the rules... Well, that's quite interesting, though, because it suggests that Christianity has a lot of its life and a lot of its form has been deeply unchristian then, because uh, institutionalised Christianity surely has often tried to sort of come up with rule books. You know, this is permitted, this is not permitted. Is homosexuality a sin? What you're suggesting is that the true spirit of Christ's gospel was actually one based on values around compassion and caring and not really about prescribing which actions are right and wrong at all. I think that's true. And I think that modern theology, insofar as I've read much of it, is very much going back to something that was flourishing somewhat in my childhood, which is a kind of social morality. It doesn't much matter whether you believe in God or the Trinity or whatnot. If you're a Christian, you work in action. When people think about the relationship between uh, religion and morality and so forth, people have this kind of worry that you, there's a choice, really, between a kind of absolutism where, you know, you have a morality where you know where the rules come from, they're prescribed, and you follow them, 
or you end up with just an anything goes relativism. But I think that's something people struggle with. I think with. it comes from the capacity we all have to imagine what other people feel and must feel inevitably in certain circumstances. So I don't think we need to fear this kind of floppy relativism if we concentrate on such questions as is it ever morally right for people to be uh, accused and then sentenced without trial? The answer to that is no. Nobody could think that was morally right. Simply by being human and having enough imagination to think of other human beings, we simply know that that is wrong. Mm. And I think if we bring down to more childish things, playground morality, we know that it's wrong, or we should be taught that it's wrong, without relativism coming in, to knock down somebody's pile of bricks that they're busy building up just for the sake of it, to use violence against people and to injure them. Bullying is wrong. And I don't think there's any question of relativism in that kind of simple situation. So, I mean, this does mean that teachers and parents have a huge responsibility for introducing children to the concept of morality. Now, I think there is a much more commonality, in fact, between people's moral views and is often allowed. Mm. And I go along with Kingsley Amis, who once said, it's easy, nice things are nicer than nasty things. <laughs> well, that is true, but I also would go further and say, over a wide range, we know the difference between the nice and the nasty. People get mixed messages at schools, though, don't they, in a way? Because often I think in lessons, people are always being told about how there are lots of different views in the world and we need to respect all these equally. But in, in the practice of the schools, there are things like zero tolerance on bullying. Right. You will do all these kind of things. I so they, they teach a more permissive outlook than they practice. But no, fortunately, absolutely. perhaps, people learn more by practice than yeah, quite right, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I always begin to bristle with anxiety when people talk about respecting other people's faith. I mean, do we actually respect the faith of those who train up the suicide bombers? No, we hate it. And I don't think we ought to be taught to respect or not respect. We ought to be taught the content of people's faith and then make up our own minds. I mean, we can then convert to Islam immediately if that's what appeals to us. The issue of keeping religion out of politics, perhaps we can see how the interplay works most clearly if we take a couple of specific examples and that's what your book does it and in in debates around things like end of life issues voluntary euthanasia abortion and so forth one of the principles that is evoked so a lot is this of sanctity of life and just to give one example of what you say there you talk about lord longford who talked about sanctity of life in one particular debate you said i think his repeated invocation of the concept of sanctity of life shows that his judgment was a religious judgment how is this an example of how religious thinking permeates the political discourse well i'm always puzzled by the argument about the sanctity of life because the whole concept the sacred or the sanctity of life seems to me to be linked with religion And sometimes when giving evidence, for example, to the select committee that there was to discuss assisted suicide, the church leaders expanded on the concept of the sanctity of life and said things like, life is a gift from God, therefore it's sacred. But there was nothing else much that the church leaders could say about that. They sometimes uttered the rather 
to me, rather odd proposition that because it was a gift from God, only God could take it away. It's not my idea of a gift, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if I give you a gift, I've given you something over which I no longer have any rights, and I don't think I give it to you with the proviso that I can take it back when I want to. I think that's lending, not a gift, but I think that may be a rather frivolous point. But very soon, they give up exploring that and move on to the purely secular argument against, let's say, assisted suicide, which is that it would be very bad for society to cross that border between never, never deliberately depriving somebody else of life and allowing it in certain circumstances. And they say that would cross a border which would be intolerable for society because it's a slippery slope and we'd be taking life without thinking about it in no time at all. And even the bishops and church leaders move on from the sanctity of life to that argument almost immediately. You say if life is truly sacred, then nothing could justify deliberately bringing it to an end. And yet the same people who talk of sanctity of life are most of the time one of either non-pacifists or believe in killing for self-defence and so forth. So it's That's actually... right. I mean, if life were really sacred, really, truly sacred, then they would not allow any war at all where you know that people are going to get killed. And they also make an exception for self-defence. Why? If life is sacred, then you ought never to try to defend yourself. Your life is no different from everybody else's life. And we know that there are occasions where human life is sacrificed and people talk about the wonderfulness of people who make the final sacrifice. Now, if we were Buddhists, Buddhists do, as far as is possible, try to avoid taking any life, any animal life, treading on beetles or flushing out wasp nests, everything, as far as they possibly can. That religion is much nearer believing in the sanctity of life than Christianity is. If you take some of the commissions of inquiry you've worked on and you've looked into the appropriate things we can and can't do to an early fetus and so forth, you look at the empirical evidence, the scientific facts. And so, for example, a very important one of those is that before 14 days, the cells of the fetus are not properly differentiated. They, they could still become anything. And so, from a scientific point of view, there isn't yet an individual life there. There are still only the conditions for something that will become life. That's just a small example, but what you're constantly doing is you're trying to, you know, look at the facts and how they relate to these issues and try and make sense of them. Whereas when people come from the theological perspective, it seems that's often not the case. And you quote a 1987 uh, report, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith of the Catholic Church issued this instruction on respect for human life and its origin. You, you say the church distinguished theoretical or theological questions about ensoulment from an ordinary human understanding of the facts. That's a phrase from the report. So is that also part of the problem of bringing theology into the public realm, which is that in, in the political sphere, we should be trying to debate things on the basis of the facts, the evidence, things that all reasonable people can agree on. And if you actually start importing concepts like sanctity of life in, in fact, you're just taking down a ready-made concept which you just have to take on trust from an authority. Well, this is absolutely why I think theologians must be subjected to questioning of what they actually mean in ordinary, everyday terms when they say, for example, that abortion is wrong. Why is it wrong? 
where does this concept come from? And it's no good giving a, a quick one-off answer that human life is sacred. Actually, the Archbishop of Canterbury said something in an interview that was published about a year ago in the New Statesman. And usually I can't understand one single word that the Archbishop of Canterbury says at all. But this I did understand, and I thought it was absolutely true. He said, of course religious people should be able to be political, enter into politics, give their views about politics, provided, one, they let it be quite clear where they're coming from, that their political views are based on their Christian faith, on their Muslim faith, or whatever it is. But secondly, that they can't expect a free passage just because they profess a faith. And that seemed to me absolutely right. Nobody argues that religious people shouldn't say what they believe is politically or morally right. And they can even preface their remarks by saying, my religion, my faith teaches me that abortion is always wrong. And and we understand what that means, and we know we're not going to change their mind, because it comes from faith, not fact. But the fact that they are speaking from the point of view of a particular faith doesn't give them more authority than anyone else who speaks from a more common-sense point of view Mm. in the way that you've just suggested. Uh, One one of the things which I think is a good sign, an indicator that this is a book worth reading, is that it's going to confuse people who have rather got used to the idea, perhaps, that it's quite straightforward to decide which team a person is on in this debate. You know, you've got your atheist bishop bashers on one side, uh, you have your defenders of the faith on the other, and people will pick this up and go, well, which which shelf do we put this on then? Which category? (laughs) And I think it's very refreshing that actually it's not obvious which category it's in, because large parts of it are arguing for clearly keeping religion out of politics, separating it. But I think it's very important that we we don't finish uh, without thinking about some of the ways in which you are very uh, positive about religion. Christianity and Judaism, well, and Islam, all of them very much based on narrative. And I do think that narrative is an extraordinarily powerful way in which we exercise our imagination. And there are people who are so much gripped by the narrative of Christianity that they actually want to and do believe that it's true, even the miraculous aspect of it. Now, I can't believe that the miracles are things that actually occurred, but that doesn't make me think that there's no point in the narrative any more than I think that there's no point in the narrative of a Jane Austen novel, because I don't believe it's true, because we can get truth of kind from fiction. I think of War and Peace, for example, as one of the great truth-giving narratives, and Jane Austen's Emma as another. And this is what I feel about the Gospels. I think they're marvellous imaginative insights. And the religion, the Christian religion and the Jewish religion, are hugely complex and wonderfully true exercises of the human imagination. But of course, religion is product of the human imagination. It couldn't be otherwise. And and that goes beyond simply an appreciation for the narratives and the text because actually the the rituals and the participation in the rituals is also something you you see as important. And you you yourself do participate in them. Yes. But I I do. And I, I frequently wonder but I haven't got an answer but I wonder often what the difference is between somebody listening to some great work of church music or taking part in some service, the difference 
between someone like me, who doesn't believe in the literal truth of the Gospels, but has been brought up in it, understands the story, knows the story, loves the story, and somebody who actually does believe. And there is a difference, but I can't quite exactly say what it is. Obviously, since all our language is built on our here and now temporal tables and chairs, furniture, other people sort of experience, when we talk about God and the supernatural, we must be talking metaphorically. Otherwise, we'd be indulging in anthropomorphism. And that is, I'm quoting from Kant when he says that. It seems to me that for you, the, the core concept is really the importance of, of imagination. And you say this is why the romantic uh, tradition is so important. And I think there's a, a wonderful sentence in your book. You say that romanticism is important because, it's like religion, it depends upon the sense that there is a mystery about the world that we can never quite unravel, that humans can imaginatively approach this mystery, but they will only glimpse the truth. That I think I'd stand by, and this is one of the reasons why music is better than words when it comes to these glimpses of transcendental. Well, um, thank you very much for coming. As I say, if you've read Mary Walnut before, read her contributions, newspapers and magazines, you'll know what to expect, which is stepping into a debate where there's a lot of hysteria, rhetoric, nonsense, and giving a great deal of clarity. Not, I think, what we would call common sense, but uncommon good sense. Thanks to you. But finally, most importantly, of course, thanks very, very much to Mary Warnock for a really interesting session. That's it for this edition. As ever, you can keep up to date with new podcasts and my writing at microphilosophy.net julianbagini.com or by following microphilosophy on Twitter. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>